that way. Um, but I always, when I speak to kind of uh, newly injured people, you know, you can, you can feel like you're really uncomfortable and you want to just shut yourself off from the world. Um, or you can just kind of swallow you, your gut one time and just say, you know what, I'm going to try and at least. This is a Life in Motion audio experience, a podcast about travel, action sports, culture, and more. What's up and welcome to episode 88 of Life in Motion. I've got Kirk Williams with me who's found freedom in a 74 square foot van by exploring and enjoying the great outdoors. One of the coolest parts, he does it all in a wheelchair. I'm excited to hear his story and learn why he's such a big advocate for the adaptive van life. Kirk, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, um, uh, especially that one of uh, our mutual friends, Matt and Grace, uh, kind of helped make this introduction. They've been on the podcast and, and chatted as well. And I was, uh, you know, curious to see if they, they came across anybody um, you know, that has an, an amazing story as well, kind of in their journey. And they mentioned you, so I'm glad we were uh, able to connect that way. For sure. Yeah. They, Matt spoke highly of you. He said, he's listened to, I guess, all 87 episodes since he hasn't heard <laughs> this one quite yet, but shout out to Matt and Grace. Great people. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've, uh, been best friends with them since fifth grade. So, you know, we, we have some good stories, but we'll leave that for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> But um, anyway, so let's uh, let's go ahead to kick things off, kind of talk about, um, you know, kind of your story, you know, where you grew up, hobbies you had growing up, kind of how you got into, you know, kind of the outdoor lifestyle um, in the first place. Yep. And it actually kind of runs side by side with with Grace more than Matt. Um, But I grew up in Virginia where they both live. And I didn't know that. Yep. I grew up in Ashland. So I went to high school and uh, middle school all with with the Schmidt family and kind of uh, that whole crew there and grew up mainly actually mountain biking being my number one passion and oddly enough grace this this one we keep talking about but her dad was a big mountain biker um, and I used to ride with him and I was one of the very few if not the only person who was up at like 5 five thirty in the morning and I would ride like 30 miles before school in high school and I would oh, wow. meet up nobody my age would do that sort of thing but Grace's dad Dan and some of his friends you know Scott and some of these guys that were all you know usually 30 years older than me um, were doing these early morning rides and I would jump on board with them and just kind of fell in love with uh, you know, nature for one, but just being outdoors, athletic, you know, abilities, exploring, just kind of, um, I live in Colorado now, but I missed like the, the dew in the morning and the like honeysuckles when you're kind of yeah. cruising down backcountry roads on your bike. Uh, nothing takes me back quicker than the smell of honeysuckles, which they don't really have out here, but, uh, you know, so grew up in Virginia there with those guys, kind of a, a little bit of a, um, I guess a slightly redneck side of me grew up riding <laughs> horses, you know, uh, hanging out with friends with big jacked up trucks and all that sort of stuff and loved it. But ultimately it was the biking and the love for the outdoors that, uh, around the time that, you know, college came around, I chose to come out West and I went to school, uh, at the university of Colorado Boulder. Uh, and that was in 2005, I guess it was when I went to college there and I haven't really looked back since I've been, been uh, loving the the western you know u.s lifestyle i guess yeah yeah so so a question there so you know riding bikes um uh with with danny and and whatnot or, yep. or not danny um that is yeah, danny too sometimes dan danny D- dan, dan dad but yeah 
same. Yeah. Okay. That's what, anyways. Um, so, so how did that, like, how did that happen? Like, obviously, you know, there's the age difference there and, you know, getting into bikes as well, as well, but then also like having that kind of, um, I guess drive for in the passion of riding bikes right, right. To, to getting up at five in the morning while yep. you're also in high school. That's hard for me now at 30 um, <laughs> totally. to, to do that. So like, how, how did that actually kind of unfold? Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a great question. I think it originally started uh, just having a bike, like any kid to having the freedom to leave your house and go ride to your friend's houses and ride around and, um, and be able to explore the neighborhood and, you know, take it off the sweet jumps, all that stuff. Um, but ultimately as I started riding more, I, I think I knew Danny, the, the, the son that you're talking about through soccer and different sports, but I found out that his dad rode mountain bikes and he offered, this was, you know, before I had a driver's license, he said, Kirk, you know, I'll come by and pick you up one day and we'll go ride these trails at this place. And so that, you know, kind of started a friendship because now I had somebody who could give me a lift to go ride trails, actual mountain bike trails. Um, but in Man, middle and high school, the bike, because I rode so much, you know, I would ride into town to friends' houses that were five plus miles away um, and just kind of used it as my car, as my my independent freedom to just kind of do what I wanted. Um, you know, when you're that young and uh, I guess I was in pretty good shape because I don't remember it being <laughs> that hard. Nowadays, I look at what I did and I'm like, kind of like you, I'm like, man, there's no way I'm riding 30 miles at 530 in the morning. Like I need my sleep or else I'm, you know, I'll be done by noon. Uh, right. But the bike, you know, was an outlet for me to uh, do an athletic kind of, I wouldn't call it an extreme sport, but it's more, um, I don't know what the word is for that action sport, I guess is what I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, and the beauty with the action sports. And I actually listened to your, your talk with the BMX guy uh, just a couple of days ago. And he had a really good point um, about this is just that, you know, you have the freedom to kind of go whenever you want, you get your kicks, but you don't have to be somewhere at five thirties, you know, for a practice, you can just ride in the morning. If it's night out, nice out or not nice, you can decide if you want to ride and you can kind of do everything more or less independently. And I think I've always been drawn towards those independent hobbies and passions, uh, quite possibly for unknown selfish reasons of me having trouble just being somewhere every time, but also just because I can push myself as hard as I want. Um, and ultimately at the end of the race or the end of the day, you know, you're, you've achieved or not achieved kind of whatever yourself has let you do. So it's, you know, it's all a mental battle. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I, and I can relate to in that way. Cause I, I grew up riding BMX bikes. So it was, it was kind of the same nice. with me. I wasn't really involved in team sports, you know, like watching football and that kind of stuff, but actually participating wasn't my thing. And kind of for the same reason that you just said, you know, it's all independent. It's all on you. You know, if you mess up, it's on you. It's not on someone else. Cause they didn't pull block for you or something like that. Right. But, but at the same time, it's so awesome because there, there's still a, a big community around those sports with people yeah. you ride with or whatever. So, I mean, there's still that, um, that aspect of that goes along with it, but the actual activity is, is all on you. So that, yeah. that's awesome. Absolutely. So, so you, uh, so you grew up in, in Ashland kind of got started mountain biking there and then you decided to, uh, ditch, ditch Virginia. You know, I I'm from Virginia. I'm in Missouri now, so I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to, to go out to, to Colorado, um, for school. So what, 
what was it about? Like, I guess, I mean, that's a, for some, some people, I, I know, you know, kids I grew up with in high school, you know, they were uh, afraid to go to a college that was an hour away from them, right. you know, you know, obviously you going across the, the country basically yep. with that. So what inspi- inspired you to make that leap? And what was it about kind of that area that I guess was attractive in that yeah, sense absolutely. as well? Another good question. You know, to be honest, I almost didn't go to college at all. Um, in high school, I had kind of started my own lawn and landscaping business. And in my mind anyway, was making hand over fist money and only working a couple of days a week. And so I thought to myself, like, why am I going to go to this quote unquote college thing, you know, and, and acquire debt and all that sort of stuff when I'm already making great money and I can maybe buy a new mountain bike soon or a new four wheeler. Everything was, you know, the present future. I wasn't thinking kind of long term. Um, and but I had, you know, enough friends kind of like my, I have an older brother and he was in college and enough people kind of gave me that little nudge that just said, hey, you know, there's a lot more to college than just. Uh, the school aspect. It's getting to a new place and a chance to meet people and the freedom and, you know, to see a new area. And so once I kind of made the decision that, okay, you know, this, this whole college thing sounds like it could be worth it. I'll give it a shot. I started looking and all the in-state schools that I really wanted to get into, which would have been like uh, Virginia Tech or JMU, um, something like that. I didn't quite, I had like a 2.9 or a 3.0 GPA and that wasn't quite good enough to get accepted um, and in-state. And so the schools that I could, or the main school that I could get into was Radford. Um, And the issue with Radford was it felt like everybody from my high school was going to Radford. And I (laughs) was like, you know, I kind of want to do something new. You know, I kind of want to switch it up, roll the dice um, and, and try making a new name for myself in a new place. And so at that point, once I started looking out of state, Really, I'll be completely honest with you. The way I picked CU Boulder was looking up online the top collegiate cycling schools and Boulder being the number one and me thinking they had a really cool looking bike jersey and knowing that (laughs) was my life. I mean, like, yeah, I'd wear that jersey. Why don't I apply here? You know, not really knowing that much about Boulder, Colorado itself. Um, and so I applied to school in Boulder. I applied to WVU in West Virginia and I, I got into both. Um, almost went to West Virginia, and and I remember my dad actually giving me a little nudge on this one, Kirk, or and saying, you know, Kirk, like, I never had the chance to really go to a different side of the country. He's like, you know, for, it's up to you, but since we're already going to be like, you know, paying out of state, and you're already going to be traveling to come home and everything, you know, you might want to think about this Colorado thing. Um, and so I I came out one time, and I remember. Uh, you know, riding with my mom for orient, or I guess it wasn't orientation, but just to see the school. And uh, she, there's this kind of, I don't know if you have you ever been to Boulder? I've not. There? No, I've never. Yeah. I've never been to Colorado at all, which oh, I need really? to add that to my list. Oh, so, totally. yeah. <laughs> anyway, there's this. You're coming down Highway 36, is what it's called, and it's this big hill that drops you down into kind of the Boulder Valley. And as you crest this hill, you have these snow-peaked Rocky Mountains in the background. In front of them, you have the flat irons, which are these big rock faces that people rock climb on and everything. And then down in the valley, you see the whole college campus and the town of Boulder. And it's just, you know, it's a gorgeous spot. There's a pull off for, you know, an overlook and stuff. And I remember coming over that and all of a sudden I hear this like sniffling beside me and I look over and I'm like, what's up, mom? And she's crying. And she looks at me and she goes, you're never coming home. And she knew <laughs> like right then and there that like, this is it. You know, this is, this is where you're meant to be. 
And, you know, sure enough, she was right. So, um, you know, I came to school, worked kind of at that point in time, I ended up not racing bikes as much as I thought I would and kind of enjoyed as many do the college lifestyle. Um, but was still worked at a bike shop and was very active in the bike community. I just wasn't necessarily, you know, spending six days a week training for a race, uh, like I was back in high school. Yeah, that, that I, 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 you know, like I, like I said, I've never been there, but that kind of, uh, picture you painted there I could totally understand that uh, yeah. <laughs> like uh, wait a minute I think I made the right choice here totally um, and the beauty out here the thing that still keeps me here really is you can be out if you're into outdoor sports in Colorado in general in most places in Colorado anyway and you're out having a beer or something you can be by yourself and talk to somebody and the next day be going biking or cross-country skiing or climbing with them you know, and versus growing up in Virginia, where I was one of, it felt like, you know, a thousand or a hundred thousand or whatever that did mountain biking out here, I was one of 10. And so it was just, it was natural to just run into people and next thing, you know, be biking with them and, and doing sports with them versus trying to convince somebody that actually bikes are kind of cool. You don't have to just <laughs> sit around and do this. Like this can be fun. Come on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that definitely helps kind of having like, well, like we kind of mentioned before that community of people that love the same thing and they're all, you know, open arms to, you know, go do whatever with, you know, the next person. Um, so, so like with that, you know, you, you kind of, your thing was mountain biking and stuff, uh, yep. when you, when you got there and racing and stuff like that. So how did, you know, obviously there's a little bit of a, well, probably more than a little bit, but a, a culture change there, you know, yeah. from going to Virginia to going there with, with so many different opportunities. And, and also, like you said, the community there where they're all kind of um, within, in those activities, just by kind of d default almost. Yeah, totally. What other, what other kind of activities did you get into once you moved there? Out, out west here yet yeah. uh, skiing being the number one thing if, if you grew up in Virginia you know wintergreen <laughs> is only so tall <laughs> yep. and, and uh you know you've got a couple of like you've got snowshoe West Virginia if you're going to make the drive and stuff but it, it's nothing you know everybody says it but it's true it's there's nothing like skiing out west you know uh and so I kind of had dabbled in skiing and snowboarding in Virginia but all of a sudden I met people who had their parents had a house in Vail and they grew up ski racing. And, uh, you know, now I could keep up with them on the mountain bikes or, you know, we all rode together in the summer, but in the winter, they would just blow the doors off. <laughs> ski slopes. I just remember coming up to these, like, follow me, Kirk, you know, let's go down this trail. And I'm next thing you know, I'm slamming on the brakes because it's like a 30 foot drop that they just sent it off of. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're like, you're fine, Kirk. Just, just, you know, point your skis. I'm like, I don't know, man. I didn't, you know, I haven't been skiing since I was two years old. Give me a little break here. Um, but, you know, when you're 20 years old or whatever, and, uh, and you feel pretty indestructible, there's no better friends to have than those that are pushing you to like get out there and try backcountry skiing or rafting or rock climbing or all these sports that, you know, you might have dabbled in, but not really, you know, had the confidence to really go for it. <laughs> yeah. And I realized around then is kind of the, as far as the evolution goes, that's when I really started falling in love with the camera. Um, and what I kind of, I had this light bulb, you know, your life is full of these light bulb moments, but one of them being that 
I love to do these sports with my friends, but I, I didn't quite have the guts or the, um, I didn't really want to do these crazy, you know, backflips or all these big, big mega jumps and stuff, but I love to be there with them doing it and celebrating. And it felt like me or felt like a way for me to do this was to have a camera in hand and start being the guy who was documenting um, a lot of the sports. So giving, you know, us having walkie talkies and me getting set up and then just saying, okay, I'm ready, you know, and letting them drop in and do stuff. And then it was kind of a win-win because I don't have to do the crazy shit anymore. <laughs> and also I get cool pictures of them and who doesn't like a cool shot of them doing something, you know, and then that can also lead to, which it did to working with little like magazines and working with little kind of publishers, getting there's prints, you know, getting a little financial kind of kickback from doing that sort of thing. That's, that's awesome. I guess. And that's, you mentioned the, the walkie talkies and kind of thing. I mean, it, it, to that point, I guess that's something I never really thought about when it comes to, um, y- you know, taking photos of skiing or snowboarding or, or things like that, where, you know, you can't necessarily see where they're coming from, right. uh, you know, with skateboarding or biking or whatever. So uh, that's pretty cool. And, and it's awesome that you got um, kind of way, able to make some money doing that as well. Obviously it sounds like uh, your, your skills uh, paid off. Did you kind of just self-teach yourself, I guess, to, to get to, to that point where, where people were like, Hey, you know, we want yeah, you, your a, photo a little view. bit, you know, more or less, I, I took a photography class in high school. My dad always was kind of an amateur photographer, but had like a DSLR back in the day. And, you know, so I kind of grew up around cameras, uh, but ultimately it was, it was that. And then I spent, um, not to go on too many tangents, but I spent my first trip ever out of the U S I spent a semester abroad, junior year of college in Ghana, uh, in Africa and spent five months living in Africa. And that kind of just blew my mind on the world. And I wanted a way to like show the world um, how, you know, what I've seen and the experiences I've been through. And I felt like the camera was the ultimate tool. You know, I wanted to be this now uh, photojournalist with a, with a niche in action sports. Um, And I was like, how do I make a career out of traveling the world, you know, doing what I love, telling a meaningful story, Um, and making a difference, you know, doing a lot more than just selling, uh, you know, these new shoes or whatever. It was kind of like, there's, there's a lot of living in Africa taught me there's a lot of very important stories that aren't told out there. Uh, and you know, they need to be at the forefront of our media feed, not, um, you know, how lightweight this titanium zipper is (laughs) on a new jacket or whatever. Yeah, that's so, so to that point, I, I, because that's that's interesting too and, and like you said i'm i'm sure very eye-opening I, I haven't personally experienced anything like that but if to that point to that experience that you had when you when you came back what was like the most i guess important thing that you learned if that makes sense yeah. like from wow. that experience i think you know when i first came back it, it, it took a while and to this day i'm sure there's things that are that that trip changed me as a human. There's no question, you know, and so many, my diet changed. Like I used to hate spicy foods and I used to hate, you know, I was very bland eater and that all changed and my appreciation uh, for so many things. But I think the number one thing that I took away from that and I try and remember and um, push myself to to keep an eye on um, is that it doesn't matter to a point anyway, 
what, what you have, whether it's financial, like basically it's being grateful for what you have in life and, and being thankful for whether it's a beautiful sunrise. Um, you know, it, it, there's people not to throw a boulder under the rug, but there's a lot of people there who have quite a bit of money. Uh, and you come back from a trip from Ghana where somebody only has one chicken to their name and probably $5 to their name. And this person driving, you know, a, a Tesla or a Range Rover or something is just hating life and really upset about this, that, and the other, and this isn't working. Now this isn't working. And then you meet somebody living a much simpler life who's just much more wholesome and happy. And I'm not saying there aren't both on both sides of the spectrum, but what I learned is it doesn't necessarily matter what you have or what you're offered. It's the outlook of being thankful for what you have and what you offer that can create this kind of aura around you that can attract those like-minded people and which, you know, just makes everybody a happier, better place versus comparing yourself to others all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Kind of a, a, a change of perspective almost. Cause yeah, I guess no, that, that happy totally is the wrong word, but being thankful maybe for what you have, cause there's, there's a difference, you know, and there's some very challenging things that I'm, I can't imagine being happy about, but there's always something to say, well, could be worse. I'm at least dot, 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 fill in the blank, you know? Yeah. That that's no, that's a great point. I, yeah. And I figured I, since, since you mentioned that, I figured I'd ask that question real quick as well. So, um, so, so back to kind of, kind of the, the evolution of your story, if you will, yeah. um, you know, uh, in, in college kind of getting into different sports and that kind of stuff, starting taking yeah. photography, what, what kind of started happening after that? Yep. So college, uh, you know, I came back from this trip to Ghana. I fell in love with the camera. I was really pushing that career. Um, but at that point I had about a year left of school and I wasn't you know, going to change majors and all that sort of stuff. And so I graduated in 2009 at the time I was working at a bike shop and working for a couple backcountry ski magazines and mountain bike magazines, just doing kind of some internship and photo editing, um, type stuff. And I, uh, moved to this town, Lyons, which is just north of, of Boulder there. And this is kind of where the, the story changes. I was kind of hoping to make a career out of, you know, the photography and everything I mentioned earlier. Uh, though I was out on a mountain bike ride, kind of a group ride, as the story goes, um, riding a trail that I rode probably six days a week. You know, I could ride it blindfolded backwards and knew every rock on the trail. Uh, and a guy was kind of coming up the trail. I was leading a group of five or six of my friends down the trail. I saw him coming up. And, and as far as mountain bike goes, the uphill rider has the right of way. Uh, so what that means is, you know, they don't have to stop their bike and let you pass. You have to stop yours so that they don't have to try and start back up going uphill. Um, and as I was coming down, I kind of bunny hopped off the trail and was slowly kind of just meandering past this guy and then about to hop back on the trail, maybe doing five, maybe 10 miles an hour um, and caught a stick that was kind of buried under some sagebrush, threw me over the handlebars. And then I landed in a, a pile of sand. It wasn't a rock. It wasn't me doing anything crazy. It wasn't that 30 foot jump or anything that I was talking about earlier. And just the way I hit, I shattered three vertebrae in my neck and had a spinal cord injury. Wow. Um, so it was kind of a crazy, like hit your funny bone type thing where all of a sudden your hand goes numb. Um, but when I hit the first thing I noticed, I remember laying on the ground, you know, and it, it, like I said, it didn't scratch my helmet, didn't break the skin. You know, there's no visible injury, um, but the air was knocked out of me. And I was kind of on my, on my stomach with my head to the side. And at that point in time, I couldn't roll over and I didn't really 
put anything together on why I couldn't roll over. I was just kind of like stunned and kind of like, whoa, why can't I breathe? What's going on? Um, and around that time, I see a face kind of come around and it's a face I hadn't seen before. And it says, you know, what's your name? And I say, I'm, I'm Kirk Williams. He goes, Kirk, I'm Dr. Dave Shinton. I'm an orthopedic uh, surgeon. I believe you just suffered a spinal cord injury. And I'm like, whoa, what, you know, just totally not really sure what is going on. And as it turns out, the guy who was riding up the trail, the reason I, you know, kind of went around uh, is Dr. Dave Shinton. He's an orthopedic surgeon in <laughs> Bozeman, Montana. And so, I, you know, I feel like right away, if there's, if you want to argue the case that everything happens for a reason, you know, you can't really have more of a, a poignant example uh, then, you know, something like that happening literally seconds after it happened, he's the first one to the scene. He knew what happened. And then he was there through talking to my friends who would have probably just flipped me over on my back and been like, what's up, Kirk, you know, what, what's going on? You know, he held my neck and they cut the camel back off and they sent people down and had the helicopter and all that sort of stuff come, you know, to fly me out of there. So if it wasn't for him, you know, God knows how much function I probably could have lost, uh, because when you first break your neck like that, any sort of movement of your head um, can be, you know, devastating to uh, how much, you know, signal goes through your spinal cord, which equates to how much, you know, movement you have and muscles throughout your body. Wow. Um, so kind of crazy though. He, he told me this years later, uh, but as I was laying in the dirt, I wasn't really upset. I was kind of just more joking around with friends and they were all kind of, you know, we were trying to just be lighthearted about it. And I wasn't thinking it was a long-term thing. I was more thinking like anybody who hurts themselves, the first thing they think is like, you know, shit, I have this next week, you know, like I have an interview next week. How do I put a bandaid on this and then deal with it later? Like, Oh, you know, I'm going to Hawaii. I can't have a broken foot or whatever. Um, you know, so that kind of happened. And I did have an interview with this, this kind of dream photography job the next week. And I was just like, man, how am I going to make this job? And I remember saying to uh, Dr. Dave there that, you know, I don't need to be able to walk again, but I need to be able to use my pointer finger because I need to operate the, you know, the camera shutter. I want to be able to photographer one day and I need to be able to take pictures. Um, and I, I didn't remember saying that until years later, I started a drone business that I do. I still do that now, but I do photography work from my chair and it was cool for me to touch base with Dave and him to remember, remind me of <laughs> me saying that to him. And I'm like, no way. Like, shit. you know, I can't move. I can't actually move any of my fingers. I can't squeeze my fingers or hold, you know, anything at all. Um, but, you know, I've found new ways to do it, whether it's the drone or, uh, or now kind of one of my text techniques is I use a uh, remote shutter, which a lot of people use on cameras for like astrophotography. Um, but it's basically a button that you plug into the side of the camera that you can operate while the camera's on a tripod. But I use that in my mouth so I can balance the camera with my hands and then I bite my teeth or use my tongue. And if I push it halfway, it focuses like a regular shutter. And then if I push it all the way, it takes the photo. And so that's the, the way to get around my finger not working, but kind of a crazy little turn of events there, you could say. Yeah, that's... Uh... I mean, the, the crash itself, like you said, it's, it's kind of crazy that it was, I don't, I don't know if it's simple was the right term, but you know, yeah. a, a crash that could happen any, any, any other day you can just kind of get up from. Uh, so, 
so that's really unfortunate. But the, the, like you said, the fact that the person who was going up the hill was a neurosurgeon, yeah. uh, or, or whatnot, um, right. knew exactly what to do to prevent any further damage. I mean, what are the chances, right? You know, what are the, I mean, that's in a sense, that kind of goes back to what we were just talking about during your experience in, in Ghana, you know, be thankful for, for what you, you have in that case. In that case, you know, that's just, extremely lucky in that circumstance, I guess, is the best way that I can think to put that. So, so once I I guess, what was it like after like that happened and sort of the reality sort of set in of like what that meant long-term? Yeah, that, that was a, a wild experience for sure. You know, it's kind of like hitting the master reset button on, on everything, you know, in life. And I kind of, remember years ago, I wrote some stuff down and kind of said that I, you know, I felt like I was like in the same video game, but a totally different character. So I'm like, you know, uh, going around Boulder or Virginia or wherever I've been before, but now I'm looking at it totally different way. I'm like, oh, this is my favorite restaurant, but wait, don't you have to go up a flight of stairs to get up there to, you know, where I go or, um, and that translates to not just going out to eat, but also like shoot everything, you know, took, um, for instance, it took almost three years for me to be able to like take a shower by myself again. Um, so just having, uh, going from being a very active mountain biker, climber, skier who could crank out pull-ups left and right to not being able to hop in and out of bed on your own or not being able to feed yourself or get dressed without just getting frustrated. Um, was a very humbling experience, but ultimately, you know, with the hard work and with it, with going after it and just being kind of determined to figure out a way, um, I have, after a few years there, was able to regain uh, independence, you know, meaning I can at least go to bed when I want to, I can make food when I want to, and I can live on my own. And that was like the the biggest achievement, I would say, of my life was going through breaking my neck um, and having very limited mobility uh, and probably 80% of my body, no mobility and still being able to live independently, um, which is kind of what led me to what we were, you brought up earlier was the the van life thing, you know, and I, now that we're talking and having kind of the, when you were bringing up like why I loved mountain biking early on, it kind of makes me question, um, thinking about it because it was like, you know, it was an independent sport that I could do there. Uh, and the van for me is basically just an extension of my independence. Um, and it gives me the ability to make the world like wheelchair accessible, uh, especially with, you know, with any vehicle like that, but especially a four wheel drive van for my purposes, being able to explore dirt roads or snow or sand or something like that. that there's no way I could get down any other way. Um, and then having kind of this little, uh, freedom pod, if you will, on my back that I custom designed to make my life as easy as possible. Once I'm inside the van. So I know I can get in and out of the bed. It's at the right height. You know, I can turn my chair at the right angle. Um, the stove, the sink, I can roll my knees under so that I can cook and I can, you know, brush my teeth. The, the fridge is up high so I can use two hands to get things in and out of the fridge. The light switches, they're all where I can touch them. The USB plugs, 
which are a freaking nightmare when you're <laughs> or trying to get the thing every single time. I swear to God, like 90% of the time, the USB tries to plug in the opposite way. Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. And you know, something as simple as just pinching your fingers, spinning it around and plugging it in. It's not that simple for me. I'm like wrapping the cable around my arm to get it to naturally want to spin around the other way, you know? So you can just imagine all those little things um, that I learned over like 10 years of me, you know, living out of houses and other vans and whatnot went into the, the design of this kind of my current van, which is, um, you know, like a, you said, 74 square feet, but it's the best design 74 square feet I could come up with. And with it, you know, I can travel up well, I've driven, you know, up through Alaska, down into Mexico, down all the way through Chile and Argentina and Patagonia. And, and I'd realized, you know, I can literally go anywhere in the world um, as a quadriplegic because I have this amazing tool um, that gives me the, the independence uh, to do that sort of thing. Yeah. That, well, it's amazing that, that you're able to ad- adapt the, the van so well for that. And I, I also think it's interesting too, in, you know, obviously not speaking from experience or not, or not, but I mean, I've, I've heard stories at least of, you know, other people that might have an unfortunate event as you did, and they don't somehow see the light at the end of the tunnel to continue oh. on the best way that they can, uh, whether that's love for the outdoors or something else to figure out how to kind of adapt and, you know, make the best out of the situation. Yep. So what kind of like through that process, like, you know, obviously, you know, you, you just mentioned more places that you've been than I've, I've been, and I've done a, a decent amount of traveling, I thought. Yeah. So, you, you know, like what, what kind of, what was that drive and that inspiration and that passion kind of to like have your mindset, okay, this is, this is not going to be my disability. This is going to be my ability right, right. to still do that. Cause I feel like totally. that would be a hard, um, a hard mental thing to get over, yeah. you know, regardless of the physical aspect. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm blessed in a lot of ways that, uh, I, I was able to quickly shift from if plan A is no longer an option, what's plan B and I'm going to focus on plan B. And I didn't spend too much time dwelling on like, well, if I hadn't have been gone for a bike ride that day, you know, like that to me seems like a mute point. It leads you nowhere, but you know, you can learn from your mistakes, but you don't need to dwell and regret. And, you know, the, the biggest thing early on uh, goes back to something we talked about earlier, but it's the community. Um, and honestly, my, the cycling community, Dan Schmidt, uh, you know, Grace's dad and, and his a whole plethora of friends that many of them, like I was saying, that are more my parents' age than my age that I used to ride bikes and stuff with the year that I broke my neck, they threw a huge fundraiser in Virginia called the Kirk Williams rollout that had like three different length of rides, a trail run, a fuzzy buddy, like dog walk, silent auction, live music, barbecue, like all this stuff. Um, and because of that, it gave me kind of the financial means to, to adapt to my house and to like do some, uh, like I, I did spinal cord recovery stuff for a couple of years. Like it gave me the tools I felt like needed to regain my independence and my confidence to do things on my own, to buy my first, you know, hand cycle that I was biking with, um, and things like that. And so it was, it was huge. You know, you're kind of saying earlier how like you had this community, even though you weren't necessarily on a football team of other BMX riders, 
Um, and that's just a perfect example of the cycling community took such good care of me because everybody knew it could have been them. You know, we all rode bikes. It's a, it's an inherent risk. Um, and those people who say like, well, that's why I don't mountain bike because I'm scared I'm going to, you know, break my neck or break my shoulder. I think that's silly. You know, I think it happened to me doing something I loved. And I think if your card is drawn, whether you're riding or, you know, you slip on a piece of ice, or I heard of somebody who literally fell out of bed and landed wrong and broke his neck, you know, it can, it's just going to happen. Um, so you don't need to, you know, I wouldn't advise getting into base jumping like tomorrow, but, <laughs> you know, if that's your deal, do, do what makes you happy. I still bike, I still do all the things. And, um, and the community really stepped up and, and for me, it was ultimately my goal was, you know, to travel the world and to take pictures and tell a meaningful story. And, um, over the years with starting the drone business and finding the, the freedom, the van allowed me to do, and then realizing that like my story is kind of unique, but not only that I can now, uh, as I've traveled, I've started to realize how fortunate I am to live in a country where I have access to um, such menial things as like wheelchairs and catheters and medical supplies uh, and stuff that we totally take for granted here until you go down into Mexico or into, you know, Peru or, or some of these developing countries where, you know, if somebody broke their neck, they're kind of a burden to the family and they're just put in the back room of the house because they can't help. Um, and so as I started traveling more in the van and taking pictures, I realized that there, there's an important story to tell out there and that I was going to focus my uh, mission into kind of a twofold thing. Um, a, for those fortunate uh, such as myself that have the means to maybe buy a van or a bike or, you know, a zero term lawnmower or whatever it is that, that I have figured out a way to adapt to, to where I can use it. You know, I can show them the ways I figured out how to go camping or how to live on my own or how to cook or what, you know, you name it, but B also show the world that we are the lucky ones and that, you know, we can do something to help bring wheelchairs uh, in particular to these different people all over the world, um, you know, and make a tangible lift uh, difference in their lives. And, um, and that led me, I work with an organization now out of the UK called the Walkabout Foundation. Um, and a lot of what I do when I'm traveling and, and when I'm taking pictures and trying to tell this story is to show that, you know, there's, I, I wish I should have the numbers right in front of me, but it's something like, you know, there's a hundred million people in the world who need a wheelchair of which like 60 or 70 million don't have access to one. So over wow. half don't even have access to a wheelchair, um, which just blows my mind, you know, that uh, how could you even hope to regain any sort of humanity or, or independence um without e being able to even move yourself uh, you know out of your house or or anything uh, so yeah it's been humbling to say the least but rewarding also one in you know in itself yeah and, and the and like you said the community that came around you to help help kind of you know push you through those the the beginning uh, especially to kind of get out there and, and still to be able to do what you love and and travel all that and now yeah. it, it, it's cool to hear that you're uh, I guess in a sense paying that forward by trying to help you know working with that organization and and kind of showing people what is possible and, totally. and what, what not there's it's 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 cool how you've kind of 
completing a circle in a sense. I don't know if that even yep. makes sense, but you know, that it's, it's, you're, you're using it as, as a benefit for others as well, yep. which is, which is super, super awesome. So, um, so, so with that, you know, are you like, um, with the organization, I don't know why I'm blanking on the name already. You just uh, said it, the walkabout foundation. Walk yep. There you go. So like what, what kind of, th- is, is there a main thing like, you know, um, fundraising and stuff to get yeah, individuals so, with wheelchairs or like, or I guess, how are, how are you totally, kind of making an impact that way? Yeah. Kind of the way I found them um, to backtrack a little bit was I, I was planning this trip down to South America in the van uh, and wanted to kind of start. Well, originally I was going to drive down. I'd driven up through Alaska um, and knew, you know, that I could sustain myself on the road with help. I mean, I have somebody with me. Um, especially during international travel, the majority of the time anyway. Uh, and, uh, but I realized, you know, I've gone as far north as I can go, which way do I go now? I guess I'll go south, you know, let's go down. And so I wanted to go down through Mexico and through Central America and down in South America. Um, but well, I'll, I'll summarize all this, but long story short, I, uh, didn't know who was coming with me. I didn't know how I was going to do everything, how much time, where the funding was going to come from, um, and you know how I was going to make that trip possible. Uh, and that's when kind of my brother reached out and said that he may be interested. He ended up joining me on the trip, but on a motorcycle. So we kind of caravan. He was on a motorcycle. I was in my van. He was there to help me if I needed help with stuff, but I had my own. We both had our own space. You know, I had the van. He had his bike and the tent a lot of times. And so we both had this amazing, you know, experience, but all that aside, I wanted it to be so much more than just like Kirk's big adventure. You know, I wanted to do something meaningful along this trip. Um, and, you know, I was looking at, do I do like science dirt samples in different parts or do I do, you know, what can I do? And I've always really felt like the wheelchair, uh, side of things, you know, is my niche. And, and I researched around online and eventually came upon the walkabout foundation and the way they work is you actually campaign, you can raise different, you know, money for them or whatever. And for $300, they can deliver a wheelchair kind of anywhere in the world. Um, now it's not super cost-effective to send one wheelchair here, one wheelchair there, you know, right. It's much more cost-effective to send 150 wheelchairs in a container to, for instance, Venezuela. Uh, And they have kind of distribution partners at these different places. And so what we decided was I was gonna kind of help, uh, you know, raise awareness around by meeting different people through Latin America and kind of who I I do see in wheelchairs, you know, and, uh, you know, telling their story, but also um, going to some of the distribution um, opportunities when they do, you know, send the chairs out. So in Venezuela or in Kenya or, in, you know, Argentina or wherever um, they're doing it. And the way the walkabout works is half of their, or I forget the numbers, it's around half. You could designate, it's up to you, but of the money goes towards the wheelchairs and then the other half goes towards funding for spinal cord injury research, um, which obviously I'm a proponent to finding a cure to this as well. Uh, so it, it just kind of seemed like such a great and small organization, but that are doing really big things. And I've been doing this for the last 10 years. So I knew they had something going on, um, you know, that 
I partnered mainly for this trip, but after this trip, I realized that I want this to be an ongoing partnership. So um, we're continuing to do a lot of things together. Uh, and hopefully even in about a month, I'm going, well, in April, I'm potentially anyway, going to uh, their distribution center in Kenya where they actually have trained um, people with disabilities to help, you know, repair and build and maintain wheelchairs for, um, you know, kind of all over that area of Africa. Yeah, that's, well, that, that, yeah, that'll be another awesome trip. So it's, it's cool how that, how you, like you said, you didn't want it, that trip just to be all about yourself in that sense. And that, you know, you, you found them and kind of was able to work with it and then continue on that partnership to continue to raise awareness and, and raise funds and everything else. So that's, that's definitely uh, amazing. And, you know, with them too, like a, being a, an action sports or an adventure person before, like I, I, it's a totally different type of adventure, but me going to Kenya is a freaking adventure as a quadriplegic to like push around and just to be there for anybody to go. Yes. But you know, it, it's like, uh, you know, the goal was always like the, the take the pictures, travel the world, tell a meaningful story, but you know, also the adventure side of things. And it's just so wild to kind of reflect at what I'm doing now and be like, holy shit, the, the goal really didn't change. It's just the, the way you define adventure or the story or whatever is, is a different connotation than I was picturing when I set that goal, you know, as a whatever 21 year old mountain biker, you know, or chasing my friends down the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So, and well, and, and back to what we were saying in the beginning of the conversation, it's all about that perspective there. And, you know, yeah. what, what pair of glasses are you looking through? Yeah, basically. Totally. totally. So, so yeah, to that point, it's awesome that you've been able to kind of fulfill that dream in that sense. And, and, you know, obviously doing some good along the way, going on, on different adventures, different meeting, different people from all over the world and, and making an impact that way um, is, is really awesome. So uh, I guess real quick, before we start to wrap things up, do you have like out of all your travels and stuff, do you have like a favorite, like story or something that that might have something something crazy or unexpected that might have happened during during your traveling or, or anything like that oh yeah <laughs> of course i'm sure more than one uh, but <laughs> yeah so many um you know let me think here you know just the, there's a lot of things that are just you can't really make up it's just uh, that uh, it's funny when you get to know other people in wheelchairs who are getting out and traveling and doing stuff around the world. Um, you, yeah, you just couldn't possibly make up a lot of the stories you hear that happen. You're just like, wow, how does this happen to us? You know, like for instance, my very first time ever traveling internationally by myself. Um, and this is kind of a good short story, but I was probably, I guess around that three year mark after breaking my neck. Um, so maybe 25 years old. And my brother had spent a semester studying architecture in Italy. And so my plan was to go to London for like a week solo. And I figured I would start there because they speak English. How hard can it be? You know, I'll be fine. <laughs> um, and then I would take a train to Italy and we would meet up and then spend a little time kind of going around Europe. And so I go and I'm staying at this hotel that's, you know, I'd already looked up and it's all accessible and has a nice shower and all the things that I knew I could use. Uh, and, you know, as I check in, they warned me that 
or they have me sign off on something in case of a fire, you know, do you want somebody to come to your room and get you? And I'm like, sure. It's kind of a weird thing to ask, but might as well, <laughs> um, you know, where this is going. Right. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm having jet lag, you know, it's an eight hour time change. I'm trying to push through, but I'm like, I have, you know, I need to take a shower and just go to bed at this point. So I'm kind of half out of it, half hallucinating. It's like four in the morning, my time, and I'm in the shower, you know, and it takes me a while to like, I don't just step in and out of the shower. Like I have to transfer onto this special bench and, you know, I, I make sure my chair doesn't go anywhere and then slowly shut the curtain without the chair rolling too far away and all those sort of things. And as I'm getting all dialed there and I turn on the faucet and I'm going, all of a sudden I hear this, and I'm like, what is that noise? And I look out and all the lights are off in the hotel and there's just the siren going off. I'm like, what the hell, you know, what's going on? So sure enough, somebody comes knocking on the door, you know, and they come in and they're like, Mr. Williams, you know, I'm like, yes. And I say, you know, there's been a fire alarm. We've been told to come up here and get you. And I'm like, I'm sitting in the shower, like, you know, butt naked. I'm like, it's going to take me like 10 minutes to get back in my chair right now. Like, I don't, you know, is there really a fire or can we just like leave me here? Like, you know, do I really have to go? Was kind of what I was thinking. So I get in the chair and, you know, you grab your valuables at that point, which for me was like my beloved camera and my passport. And then I threw a towel across my lap. So, I'm, you know, I'm naked from the waist down. I'm wearing a sweatshirt and, you know, I go out in the hallway and they end up taking me to the top of not because all the elevators had turned off. So the top of one of the fire escapes and say, we're, you know, I'm just going to stand here with you. And he had his walkie talkie kind of said, you know, I'll wait and see if we really need to go down or if it's just a fire alarm. And uh, fortunately it was just a fire alarm. It wasn't a big deal, but it was just kind of one of those, like, of course, my very first time ever <laughs> out of the country by myself you know, something crazy like that happens. And that's just kind of the things that you got to, he, I had him take a picture of me, you know, sitting right there, um, just laughing, you know, just saying, you know, <laughs> you, you, you got to learn to laugh at all the little things because after, and that's one positive to, to breaking your neck or going through something that severe is like all the menial little things like that are, are chuckle worthy. You aren't going to sit there and stress. Like it's not that big of a deal. It's pretty funny in, in hindsight. Yeah. I mean, what are the, what are the chances too? like, Hey, can you sign this paper too? You know, just in case nothing's right. going to happen. And then, totally. you know, a couple hours later, Oh, here we go. Yep, there it goes. <laughs> yeah. I know. Go figure. Oh, that that's like you said, you know, you gotta, you gotta figure out a way to, to laugh at those moments. And oh, uh, yeah. I'm sure they're even funnier kind of looking back at them. Like, yeah, really? <laughs> Absolutely. So so one thing I always like to, you know, ask our guests is, you know, one piece of advice for our listeners. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, obviously from, from growing up in Virginia to Colorado to, you know, the accident and, you know, where you're at today, there's, there's plenty of different advice that I'm sure you could offer anybody, but kind of the, the two things I want to ask is one, I guess, what, what would be your, so two twofold, I guess. What would be your biggest piece of advice for that someone that might have, might have an accident like this? You know, they 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 were born, you know, able to walk and whatnot, and and something crazy happens in your case. What what would your biggest piece of advice for them to kind of help help them get through that sort of that mental hurdle, if you will? You know, where where you were were able to do that, and now you know, like you said, kind of look at you now, you're still 
following your dreams and, and kind of pursuing right. those and, and doing that. So what would you tell someone that, that, that found themselves in, in that sort of situation to be able to kind of push through and like still chase, you know, what they were passionate about beforehand? Right, right. Totally. Um, I can only speak from what, what I did, but what worked well for me, it was to, to normalize the, the accent and the function that I have. And what I mean by that was, um, I was able to surround myself or to be hang out with other quadriplegics, other people who had broken their neck. Uh, and I played on a wheelchair rugby team. I was lucky to live outside of Denver where they have a big adaptive sports community. And so I got in with a quad rugby team, which is mostly all similar injuries to me, um, but guys that have been in chairs for 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, and by being around those guys, you know, it, it helped me. I can't even put into words how much it helped me so much more than just the sport of rugby, but having people that I could ask questions of like, you know, from the personal stuff to like, how do you go to the bathroom on your own? You know, all the way to like, why do you drive that car? Or have you ever been sailing or, you know, uh, well, that's a cool jacket. How do you work the zipper? You know, like all these random things. And being around people that can also vent with each other about just like, fuck, this morning it took me forever, you know, to get these pants on. Or I like finally changed and then I peed myself. So it took me another hour to change again, you know, and it's like it helped me uh, really realize that, I, you know, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that has had this happen to them and that, you know, there's <laughs> there's hope if you want to put it that way. Um, yeah. But I always when I speak to kind of uh, newly injured people, you know, you can, you can feel like you're really uncomfortable and you want to just shut yourself off from the world. Um, or you can just kind of swallow your, your gut one time and just say, you know what, I'm going to try and at least meet these people or hang out with these people once or twice. And, and more times than not, you know, they go back again and again and become good friends. And then, you know, you start feeding off each other. Yeah. Yeah. That, that totally makes sense. Kind of like you said, sort of normalize it in a sense and, and embrace yeah. it to, to the fullest and, and meet, you know, other yeah. individuals that way. Yep. And a therapist can tell you like what you're doing wrong and why you're not pulling your pants on this way or whatever. And you're going to look at them and be like, screw you. Like you're not dealing with this. <laughs> you know, what you learned in college isn't what I'm feeling right now, but another quadriplegic who's somebody who has a very similar injury to you can look at you and tell you it. And you're going to listen. You're going to say, you know what? I don't know how the hell I'm going to do that, but I'm going to give it a shot because it works for you. So maybe it'll work for me. Yeah, that makes it. I mean, you know, if, if you want to, um, you know, learn how to, to work on a car, you're not going to ask a farmer, right. you know, so, in that sense. So that, so that kind of totally that, I mean, that totally makes sense, you know, and, and kind of shows what, what is possible, you know, after, after the injury and that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and then, so, and then the second question is obviously you've done a lot of traveling, you've, you know, gone, um, have gone all in, in the van life and that kind of stuff yep. for somebody that, that wants to kind of get out there and start experience or, or maybe is afraid to, you know, live that life on the road or something like that. What, what would you, what would you offer for them? I mean, the number one thing I, I hate seeing that I would advise not doing. So I'll, I'll start with the, the don't do this. <laughs> um, is spending so much time planning it and, and figuring out that, oh, I need, 
these lights and I need this solar panel and I need this fridge and, you know, all these big expensive things that they never actually leave. They never actually start the trip and they get so bogged down on the details of traveling that they don't start to travel. And so what I would advise, if at all possible, you know, link up with people, you know, that, that do travel in the van, or if you drive a, a Subaru or a forerunner, it doesn't matter what you're driving, you, you know, hope if you have a car, I mean, first let's start there. If you have a car, that's wonderful. Um, if you can sleep in the car, that's, that's doubly wonderful. It might not be comfortable, but at least give it a shot, you know, go on a little bit of a trip and just sleep in the back or, or set up a tent or, you know, if you want to do it in a boat or on a horse-drawn carriage or whatever, you know, that's fine too. I just like, I hate to see people who get, start comparing themselves to these full-time van lifers or these whatevers who have these very expensive rigs and, and never get out and do it because they don't think they can afford that lifestyle or that rig. And I've met you know, some of the going back to the happiness side of things, the, the frame and what you look at things. I met people in South America um, who literally were given like a Ford Ranger uh, from a friend that was probably worth $500. And they were down in Argentina and drove it the whole way down and <laughs> had like a styrofoam cooler, a, a Coleman camp stove, a couple collapsible chairs. And they were like the happiest, just like, <laughs> this place is amazing, you know, just loving it. And then you pass somebody you know, in a Unimog or something, a half million dollar expedition vehicle. And, you know, they might be loving it too, but it's, it's, I'm just saying you don't need this fancy rig to do it. You know, just like, in my opinion, the real, uh, the real hardy, the OG van lifers and the, whatever you want to call it, you know, but world travelers are the people not with the swanky fancy rigs. It's the people that are out there just using whatever they have at their disposable or at their disposal. And instead saying, well, I could spend you know, three grand on solar panels, or I could spend three grand and truck be on the road for the next four months in, in Mexico, because that's how far my money goes, you know, which is more important. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, basically, you know, don't, don't get caught up in the details and and don't compare yourself to, to others kind of in that sense. And, and to your point, just, uh, you know, steal a line from Nike, just do it. You know, if you got your yeah. mind on it, that that's awesome. So where, where can people find you online to see what you're up to kind of follow your story? Totally. Yeah. Um, the best is probably, uh, Instagram's kind of the main thing I do stuff on and it's at impact I M P A C T overland. Um, so impact overland. And then I have a link there for the walkabout foundation, you know, the campaigns and kind of my travels and stuff I do with them. Um, I do have a website at www.impactoverland.com, um, but that is a work in progress, let's just say. <laughs> um, I have a bunch of photos that, that are one of these days will make it on the website, but for, for up-to-date and continuous content, um, the Instagram is probably the, the easiest way. Cool. Well, definitely uh, everyone make sure you, you check him out. See who he's up to. Um, obviously super awesome, super humble guy. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing your story and, and kind of that perspective of everything along that yeah. journey. And, uh, I definitely wish you the best, uh, you know, hopefully in your, in your trip in uh, Kenya coming up in April and then for the rest cool. of the year and beyond. Absolutely. I appreciate it. It's been great being on here. And if anybody, listening has any questions or anything feel free to, to shoot me a message on there i'm very open and happy to um, to help problem solve for for anybody 
Thanks for listening. And hey, if you've made it this far and like what you've heard, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and let your friends know about life in motion. Until next time.